If you want to take your Bibles and turn in them this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you would like one, we do have some copies there on the back table. Uh, we have both uh, smaller print for the eyes that are able to see that, uh, unlike mine, and then some with the larger print if you need that. So uh, if you need a copy, uh, just slip up your hand if you do need a copy, and Mike will actually grab one for you. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this will be our passage this morning. We've already read portions of this uh, as Mike uh, read for us, and we read together uh, from verse 12 on, and then we will close our service with another portion of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Uh, our passage for this study will be verses 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11. It's, it's almost become an Easter tradition and no, it's not Easter baskets and hunting for eggs, but rather those stories that we see all over the news each and every year denying the details of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's become almost commonplace in our culture that at this season, it will bring to us articles and reports, specials on TV that cast doubt on what Scripture says and our faith. But often, the attack on Easter isn't always that prominent. In fact, this past week, I noticed this rather, you could say, subtle jab from someone at our very own Sun Prairie Library. The library will be closed Sunday, April 21st, not for Easter, but for the spring holiday. And while we've been accustomed to seeing the news reports and primetime specials, it's this kind of thing that hits home, doesn't it? This is the sad reality of not only the culture we live in, but our city and the neighbors we live with. Places where Easter can no longer be called Easter, for that's just too religious. And so we have to exchange it for a term that's less offensive, like the spring holiday. Now, you and I might walk past a sign like this and at first not think anything of it, but the truth of the matter is, at its root, this type of exchange is actually what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. And it's, it's an exchange of truth, an exchange that really has been taking place ever since Adam and Eve listened to the lie of Satan rather than believing the truth from God. You see, this sign hanging on the door of Sun Prairie Library is not just a problem because it replaces the word Easter with spring. No, it's a problem for us because it uncovers the reality that the truth is being denied by those we rub shoulders with daily. Oh, of course, we know that to be the case, but we often forget it in the busyness of life, don't we? We know that our neighbors and our co-workers need what today is all about. They need a risen and reigning Savior. But in the nine-to-five grind of the workday, and then the five to nine chaos of homework, home repairs, dinners, baths, and bedtimes with the littles, we tend to forget what's of first importance. Well, as chapter 15 opens here in 1 Corinthians, we come to notice rather quickly that this tendency to forget what's most important was something these believers were struggling with as well. As we've learned over the past several weeks in our study through the last three chapters, chapters 12 through 14, this church in 
Corinth was quite messed up. They had continued to struggle with issues of sexual immorality, division, social snobbery, confusions about marriage and divorce, involvement in pagan worship, order and disorder within corporate gatherings, and even the resurrection of the saints. Basically, if there was a problem to have, this church had experienced it. And so as Paul addresses these issues one after another within this letter, what becomes quite evident as he does is that there is a far deeper issue at stake. It's here in chapter 15 that we reach what one commentator calls the crescendo of this letter. And what we find here in these verses is what the Corinthians have forgotten, what they have drifted away from. But this is the foundation for all of Paul's theology, all of his ethics. For Paul, everything he has said in this letter so far hinges on this. On this passage, this historical reality and the transforming effect of Christ's death and resurrection. And so he writes this, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And this is God's word for us today, so let's pause now to thank him for it before we study. Father, this morning, we are grateful for your word. In the midst of a culture that is seeking advice and wisdom from all sorts of places, from bookshelves and books in bookstores to newspapers to blog posts, all of these various things are, are coming at us, and yet we know where the absolute truth is found in you and your word for us. And so we're quieting our hearts this morning. We're setting aside distractions, and we're focusing our attention on your word. And I pray this morning that your word would be clear, that you would give me the words to say, that you would help each individual here to listen in to what you have to say, not what I have to say, but what you have to say in your word this morning to us. And so give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see what you have for us, Give us hearts ready to accept your word, that it might change us, might transform us, so that we would hold on to that 
which is of first importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray all these things for our good and your glory. In your name, amen. Well, what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15 and in these verses is not only setting the stage for what he's about to say regarding the resurrection of the dead, again, what we've read this morning, because there is, there is some controversy within this church in Corinth about whether or not believers would be raised with Christ from the dead in the end. But Paul is also here establishing what must be primary within the church. What must be primary in the lives of believers, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what was lying underneath all of the issues that are happening here in the church of Corinth was their failure to hold the gospel as the matter of first importance. In fact, even as we saw the past several weeks in chapters 12 through 14, their quest for popularity, and even as they were arguing for spirituality through the practice of the spiritual gifts, That had distracted them from, and they started drifting away from keeping the main thing, the main thing. So as Sinclair Ferguson points out, Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality, they may give the impression of being the most spiritual, but from the New Testament's point of view, and as we see here, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality, because their focus is so exclusively on the union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, the gospel, are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. Only when we forget about ourselves and focus on Jesus Christ will our fruitfulness be nourished by the ongoing resource the Spirit brings to us from the source of all true fruitfulness, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's this very truth that the church in Corinth needed to be reminded of the gospel that they had received. And so Paul sets out to remind them here of something very simple, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. Nothing else is of first importance. And Paul here, who's written about 75% of the New Testament, written a lot of things for us to understand in this word, says this is what matters the most. Make sure You get this. The truth is, we need to be reminded of this as well. For whether or not you and I may be tempted to believe the lies from our culture and deny the truth, we can certainly be just as susceptible as the Corinthians to being distracted from and drifting away from the truth that is of first importance. For as Martin Luther has profoundly noted, even after we have been converted by the gospel, our hearts have the tendency to go back to operating on other principles, unless we deliberately and repeatedly set it to gospel mode. So friends, whether you're here this morning and would not classify yourself as a believer, as a follower of Christ, or if you're here this morning and do believe and follow Jesus, I want to urge you to listen in to what God, through Paul, says here in these verses this morning. Whether you believe it or not, your very life depends on this truth. And so listen in and observe with me three simple truths Paul asserts here. The gospel delivered, the gospel verified, and the gospel believed. Notice first with me that Paul reminds the church in Corinth 
and us of the gospel delivered. Paul begins his exhortation to remember what is of first importance by explaining to this church that this truth, the gospel, was something he had already preached to them. In other words, it's not something new. What they needed was not something new, a new truth to solve all their problems. They needed an old truth, something they had already heard. In fact, if you look back in chapter 2 and verse 2, there Paul explains, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the truth he had delivered to them during his second missionary journey, which is recorded for us in Acts 18, where, as he comes to Corinth, stays in the house of Aquila and Priscilla, which, you have to admit, those are great names for a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. But as he's staying with them, Acts 18.5 says he was occupied with the word. In other words, the gospel, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, that is the Messiah, was Jesus. And we see through that witness, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized, Acts 18 tells us. And so Paul here in verse 1 is reminding them of that. He's reminding them of those days when he declared the good news and they believed. But notice in verse 3, that even though they have already believed, he isn't just going to assume they understand and know the gospel. Rather, he delivers it to them once again. He recognizes the propensity of our human hearts and minds to forget. And so he preaches once again the truth of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This, Paul says, is the matter of first importance. It's this truth, the gospel that must be the center of all things. For without this truth, without this good news, we are left, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. So what Paul is reminding the church in Corinth is, of is the greatest news ever known to mankind. These verses here speak of the reality of our sin, the necessity of a divine punishment for our sin, the amazing provision of salvation through the death of Christ in our place, and the acceptance of that death by God through Christ's resurrection from the grave on that very first Easter. Uh, this is good news. But this book we hold in our hands this morning tells us that though we as mankind have been created by the one and only holy God in his image to know him and have a relationship with him because of sin, we're cut off from him. In his holiness, God cannot have anything to do with sin. Now that's bad news. But God. The two greatest words in all of scripture. But God in his great love and, and for his fame and glory took on flesh, becoming fully man in Jesus Christ. To live a perfect life fully without sin. And yet, as we read here in verse 3, he died. Died for our 
sins. Jesus took upon himself the full fury and wrath of God so that you and I might have eternal life. But, as Paul reminds us here, he did not remain in that grave. No, death would not have the last word. As Paul reiterates here in verse 20, as we read, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The good news is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised on the third day so that you and I might have life eternal in him. Paul explains this truth like this in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, we see the gospel delivered in the richness of his grace. God made a way for you and I to come back into a relationship with him. Just as we were created for through Jesus Christ. It is this truth that is of first importance. But also notice here in this passage how Paul reminds them of the gospel verified. Twice, both in verse 3 and again in verse 4, as Paul is explaining the truths of the gospel, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he uses this phrase, in accordance with Scripture. And his point in doing so is both to establish and verify the truth of the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures. Perhaps Paul here has in mind passages such as Isaiah 53, which foretells of a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows who would be smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that would bring us peace. And with his wounds we would be healed. You see, friends, the the gospel, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection fulfills all of God's saving promises. This here was not God's plan B. No, God was not taken off guard by the death of Christ. For when the fullness of time had come, Paul writes in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gospel was God's plan all along. God wasn't trying to figure out what he was going to do for three days before finally coming up with the idea to raise Christ from the dead. No, this too, Paul says, was in accordance with the scriptures. And likely he had in mind Psalm 16, 110, Hosea 6. You see, Paul's point here in these two phrases is that the gospel he delivered to them is the fulfillment of all the promises made since that promise in Genesis 3 of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. In Jesus Christ, those promises are fulfilled. But also notice here, 
And as he's verifying this truth of first importance, the gospel, he outlines in verses 5 through 8 all the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ as a verification that this gospel he delivered is absolutely true. Christ appeared, he says, to Cephas, that is, the apostle Peter, to the twelve disciples, to more than 500 brethren at one time, to James, to the apostles, and then, Paul says, to last of all, me. Now this is is not an exaggeration from Paul here. He's not just picking and choosing random people who he thinks might have seen Christ at some point. He is careful here to be historically accurate in his details. If we had the time, we could go to specific passages for each one of those listed here, giving proof of, of their seeing the risen Jesus. And Paul's point is that, in fact, just as these individuals have seen, Christ had been raised from the dead. And this past week, we read the eyewitness accounts and saw the shocking pictures and videos of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris as it was ravaged by fire. And those pictures, the news reports, verified what some had only heard to be the case on Thursday morning. Now there's no doubt at all in anyone's mind that that tragic event took place. But there is another story about the Cathedral of Notre Dame that for many still remains a mystery. That is the hunchback of Notre Dame. For years, the hunchback has been viewed as a mere myth or a legend. It was made popular by the Disney film, which retold the story from Victor Hugo's novel of 1831. However, in 2010, a group of academics uncovered references to a humpbacked carver in the memoirs of Henry Sibson, a 19th century British sculptor, sculptor who had been working at the cathedral around the time this book was written. So now the question has become, Is the hunchback real? Or is he just a myth? I guess we may never fully know if he was real or not, but we can know this. We can know this for sure. The gospel is not a myth. The gospel's not a legend. It's been verified by eyewitness accounts. And as Paul explains in verse 9 through 10, it has also been verified by radically transformed lives. Paul himself being object lesson numero uno. One who, he writes, is unworthy because he persecuted the church of God. Nevertheless, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Redeemed, restored, that is what the gospel does. This is the gospel verified by eyewitness accounts and transformed lives. So he says, I've delivered it to you. I verified it through the eyewitness accounts and even look at me. That's proof that the gospel is true. But finally this morning, I want us to recognize that Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel belief. For Paul, it's not enough for his hearers to know the basics of the gospel message he had delivered to them. Nor is he content to just 
give them the historical details and eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Oh, for sure, those both are important. But for Paul, he's most concerned that they believe the gospel. Paul is most concerned that we believe the gospel. And that, they, that we continue to believe it and apply it to all areas of life as that matter of first importance. So he writes, the gospel I preach to you in verse 1, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word, that is to the gospel I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Again in verse 11, after Listing the eyewitnesses and explaining the transforming effect of the gospel on his own life, Paul writes, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and what? So you believe. You see what Paul is doing here. He's not only bringing this church back to its very foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's also bringing them back to their response to it. For you see, the gospel must always be responded to. It at all times calls for a response. You can either reject it or receive it. You can either believe it or deny it. But there can be no indifference to the claims of Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the grave. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and have never turned in faith to Jesus, repenting of your sin your inability to save yourself through any means, good works, moral living, you name it. Let me urge you today to respond to the gospel, to respond in faith to this good news you've heard this morning. Believe that Christ died for your sins so that you might have life in him. The gospel of Jesus, writes Tim Keller, is not religion, nor is it irreligion. It's not morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. Nor is it something halfway along the spectrum between the poles. It's something else altogether. The gospel is distinct in its view. Everyone is wrong. But everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this. By running to Christ. And so friend, do that this morning. Respond in belief and be transformed by the gospel. Your life depends on it. For those of you here this morning. Who have received the gospel. You have turned in faith to Jesus. And have repented of your sins. Let me urge you as Paul is doing here. To continue to believe. To continue to stand in the gospel. Hold fast to it. Believe by, as Paul says here, stand in the good of the gospel and hold fast to the gospel. By not becoming distracted from what is of first importance. We know how easily we can be distracted, don't we? Our children come up and start talking to us. We get a little buzz on the phone and we're distracted. You're doing your job at work. Very focused in on what you're about to do, and a coworker comes up and asks a question. 
And then for the next 30 minutes, you're distracted. We know what it's like to be distracted. Paul is saying here, you can be distracted by good things, even within the church, like spiritual gifts. Don't let those distract you from what is of first importance. Don't loosen your grasp on the gospel so that you start to drift away. See, Paul's supreme desire for the church in Corinth is not that they would no longer encounter any problems, that they would be a church that is perfect. No, his passion is that they would remember the gospel, would remember the main thing. Again, Tim Keller notes, Paul is showing them here that you never get beyond the gospel in the Christian life. You don't go to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the A, B's, and C's. It is the A to Z of Christianity. It's not the minimum requirement, minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom. But it's the way we make any progress in the kingdom of God. This is why we must never move on from what is of first importance. This is why the gospel must always and ever be for us as a church and for each of us as individuals the center of our lives. So we must be on guard from becoming distracted and must watch out for the drift away by preaching this good news to ourselves daily. But not just rehearsing it, believing it. Believing it, believing that Jesus is better than any comfort. Believing Jesus is far better than all riches. Paul tells us here, the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. So I ask you this morning, do you believe it? Do you believe this life-altering truth? Are you standing in it? Are you holding fast to the gospel. British minister W.E. Sangster began to lose both his voice and his mobility in the mid-1950s. He lost this from a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. Recognizing that the end was near, he threw himself into writing and praying in order to serve his church. Eventually, Sangster's voice failed completely and his legs became useless. On the last Easter morning, he lived here on earth. Just a few weeks before his death, he took a pen and shakily wrote his daughter a letter. In it were these words. It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Church, may we be a people who cannot keep quiet about what is of first importance, that Christ died, was buried, and is risen. He is risen indeed. So, Father, I pray that each one of us here would hold fast to the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that if there is someone here this morning that has not believed this truth, that through your word they have felt the weight on their soul, 
They have seen their own exchange of the truth for a lie. They have seen that Jesus Christ stood in their place, bearing the full wrath for their sin, and that as they've seen that, that you would in their hearts do that amazing, miraculous work of regeneration. Awaken their dead hearts so they might understand this glorious truth. And turn in faith and repent of their sins and believe. Believe that you are far better than all else in this world. That there is no way that they can earn eternal life. That there is no way they can bring themselves back into a relationship with, we, with you, our creator. But it's only through faith in the once and for all finished work of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, showing power over death and the grave. God, would you do that in that heart this morning that is sitting here in unbelief? Do that in the lives of our children that even right now are hearing this good news as well. God, do that throughout this city. Do that with our neighbors that we see each day as we proclaim this truth, as we are loud about this truth. Change hearts. Transform lives for your glory. God, may we who have turned in faith to you, may we not be distracted or drift away from this truth. Oh God, we know how easy it is, how prone we are to wander. So God, bring us back. Help us to hold fast to this truth. That which is of first importance.